Tov, this is Heart of the Matter Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and, your tr- and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord uh, God, we seek you in spirit. We seek you in truth. Help us to be uh, in tune to what you want us to know. Forget the things that are not uh, useful to us and uh, being better Christians, loving people more, walking in faith, and uh, getting past all the religiosity that uh, seems to surround us in this state and the rest of the world. So we love you, Lord, and be with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we had a wonderful time with uh, our brother and pastor, 47 years, Glen Hill, last week. Lots and lots of positive comments. And uh, Glenn called me this week, and he asked me to tell everybody who was here how much he loves you and what a great time he had out here with us. We encourage all of you to contact Glenn directly and obtain his simple, straightforward approach to that question, has Jesus returned or not? And uh, that his contact information should be on the screen. Is that coming up? Yeah. That's coming up. It's on the screen. That's how you get a hold of Glenn Hill and to get his book. I think it's 12 bucks. It's definitely worth a read. Changed my life forever. That's why we had him on the show. Several weeks back, we had an interview with atheist agnostic Bryce uh, Blankenagel. I think I have that right. A young man I actually enjoy talking with. In fact, I've had a phone conversation with him recently, and I like Bryce a lot. Prior to our interview, he sat down uh, with me in a public library in a private room, and we had a heart-to-heart, and his podcast is now available at Naked Mormonism. I wasn't naked when we did the interview, though he did try to get me that way. Just kidding. Uh, NakedMormonismPodcast.com. That was a joke. NakedMormonismPodcast.com. You'll find the interview that uh, Bryce and I did under special edition number 42 called Cardio of the Stuff, a play on words of heart of the matter. He is quite the witty fellow. Uh, Check that out. I thought that uh, we were able to talk about some unique things, so you can check that out. While we're on the subject, uh, after that nice conversation I had with Bryce this past week, I hung up and I realized something separate from Bryce and his, his atheism, but just about atheists in general, uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, the atheists who are big uh, in the world, I wonder if they realize what scripture says about who Christians are. I wonder if they realize that true Christians are not the powerful and not the, they're the weak in the world. They are not the strong. That God uses the weak things of the world, the broken things, the despised things, uh, to bring about His will. Uh, Because if He used mighty things, then the mighty would get the credit. So He uses uh, broken and weak things. And I wonder if atheists realize that first point. Because this faith is in the lives of some very weak people like myself, the world is a safer place because of it. I wonder if they realize that too, that because of the faith, that the world is a safer place. I mean, often some of them will pick and mock and criticize the fact that we follow Jesus, forgetting that in the case of true Christianity, not in religion, religion, but in true Christianity, that that makes people who are damaged better people. Put it this way. Let's say that I live next door to Dawkins and I don't know the Lord. I am just Sean McCraney, born and raised without knowing Jesus. 
And he and 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 Mr. Dawkins possessed the following: a barking dog, a hot wife, and a propensity to anger me. All right? Now remember, the gospel is for the weak things. That would be me, the weakest of the saints. Well, does brother Mr. Dawkins realize that without Jesus in me, that I would kill his dog? I would kill his dog. <laughs> it's true. I have killed animals before knowing Jesus. So uh, Bryce doesn't think this is true of me. I would try to steal his hot wife. Okay? This is not made up. So Dawkins picks on people who follow Jesus. Jesus comes into my life and changes me. So his dog is safer. His wife is safer. And if I didn't have Jesus in me, I would sneakily with stealth find a way to knock his teeth out if he annoyed me. See, but with Jesus in me, Dawkins is safe. I don't know why the atheists don't understand that about what the gospel really does in people's lives. And those are just three examples using me, but we all have different things. You know, employers are going to be happier with their employees if their employees actually, we mean truly, follow Jesus. Not just said faith, not just religion, but they actually are Christian. Why would the world not want more real Christians. I don't know. So what I'm thinking is maybe what they're tired of are the phony Christians. Maybe what they're really arguing against are the rats who use Jesus' name to spew venom and try to dominate everyone's lives and do all this other stuff. Maybe that's what they're really against because I could not see with the true Christians I know, if they met a real, the ones who are in this room, many of them that are in this room and some outside of it, that if Dawkins or, or Sam Harris or any of these guys met them and knew them, they would love them just like they love Jesus if they met him. So uh, he came for the weak and the lost. And, uh, you know, this was kind of played out really quickly. We did a, had a thing here called the Inquisition. And I was standing up for my belief that the Trinity is man-made, and I just don't like the term or the, or the word. I don't mind God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit being God, but when we come to Trinitarianism, I didn't like it. Well, a bunch of Christian fundamentalists came, and we had this confrontation. We called it the Inquisition. It's online. And during that Inquisition, I'm up on the stage, and a raving lunatic came in the back, and he was spouting off stuff and Mary, my wife, went to, to, to confront him and they had something going on, like a physical grabbing of each other at the back of the room while this place is full. And I look over at one of the Christian pastors and he's laughing at the fact that my wife is being mauled by this lunatic. And so on the air, no one knows why I say this, but I say to that pastor, you're lucky I'm a Christian or I'd come punch you in the face. That's all anyone heard was me say, but they don't realize that he was laughing at the fact that my wife was being attacked at the back of the room. And the irony of that is I am professing to believe in a God who is keeping me from doing that to him, and yet they are attacking me for the God I believe in. It doesn't make any sense, this stuff. So all this stuff has caused me to kind of step back from outright attacks on people and their particular approaches to God, and to realize that their faith, if it encourages them to love people more, if it really does, and it helps them to love people more, 
I need to back off and let their theology be their theology, share the truth if they're interested in dialogue, but just back off on all the vitriol that comes with religion. Got a couple interesting emails recently. This is from Herbert Z who writes, I came across one of your videos on YouTube where you talk about the teachings of the LDS. I got a few visits from the missionaries and they gave me the Book of Mormon and asked me to pray if, to God to see if it was the book that it was, I was supposed to be reading. I did exactly that. I got on my knees just before I went to sleep and asked God if the book had the message that he wanted me to have. That same night I had until today, the most horrible dream I have ever had. Think of an anaconda black as coal on the edge of a cliff charging me, and I was just moved to the side, and I let it pass, and it went down, down to the cliff, all the way to the ocean. I had to give the book another chance because I did not know if the dream comes from God or Satan, and because Satan can interpret thoughts. So that's another theme. The second night I did the same. I got on my knees. I asked God the same question, but it turned out that I had another nightmare, but I don't remember it because it was a year ago. I said to myself, if I, I wonder if I should ask God if the Holy Bible is true. The third night I asked the same question, but regarding the Holy Bible. I had a pleasant dream. I remember that my mom, uh, God's son, was sitting on a chair by the dining table and out of nowhere said, God is great. So I took that message uh, that the Holy Bible is what I should be reading. Jesus knows uh, that I'm writing this true and the Holy Spirit is my witness. And I say this truly. Well, listen, dreams are interesting. And um, while I love the imagery of Herbert's dream, and I can't deny or accept it, it's his dream. The unfortunate thing about dreams is that there are a lot of people who dream that the Book of Mormon is true. So while his is, yeah, we could certainly use that and say, man, look at this, anaconda, black as coal, charging you toward the cliff. It's evil. But there are people who pray and they have dreams that the Book of Mormon is true. So what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, for this reason, I believe that we have the Bible to check facts. We have history to check facts. We have linguistics and genetics to check facts. We can look at Zarahemla. We can go in and examine it. We can look at their coins and we can look at the archaeology and we can look at the language and the manuscripts that created the Book of Mormon. Oh, no, we can't. So <laughs> what we do is we say there's a problem there. But we can go and we can do this with the Bible. Now, I'm not mocking it. I'm just saying dreams can be sketchy because I'm not saying it wasn't real, Herbert, but I just say there are people who have them and uh, sometimes they lead them in the wrong direction. Another one from Jeanette who wrote, I'm 65, believing in and serving in the Mormon church, sending a son and daughter on foreign missions. It's pretty devastating to find my life is that I've taught my nine children has been based on fraudulent claims. Like someone said, it's like I had my feet firmly planted on thin air. I am presently in limbo land because this new knowledge totally complicates an already complicated life due to divorce after 40 years from a bipolar man who impacted my life due to his obsession about the need to live all of God's laws, including plural marriage. I said no to him taking more wives, but mania in him distorted his reality, so I basically lived with his phantom plural wives all our married life. Hence, I hate Joseph Smith and what he did. I hope she can overcome that, because hating someone, you're just caught up in, in that, and that's just going to destroy you. She says, I totally believe he was bipolar. Uh, exhibiting all the same symptoms as my bipolar husband, 
grandiose ideas, visions, narcissism, treasure hunting, oversexed fantasies of being married to many women, charisma, intelligence, paranoia about Satan's power, and claiming supernatural power. Pray for Jeanette, you guys at home, and pray that she is released from the hatred she carries. It's normal when you come out of something that you believe you've been tricked or you have been tricked in. It's normal to carry that burden around. But, you know, as long as you do, uh, it's going to eat you up. It will eat you up and you will be a prisoner to that memory until you can let it go and let something better take its place like Christ Jesus. Because most of our content tonight is going to come from the Word. I'm going to skip that uh, section of our show tonight from the Word and get down to business. All right, let me take a drink. And uh, Delaney, uh, Kathy Mags, will you show the uh, call-in number? Because when I'm done with this, if there's no call-ins, we're wrapping it up. All right, a couple of weeks ago, we wrapped up all of Noam Chomsky's, all of his insights into how the few manipulate the many in government and in major corporations. I showed you a chart on the whiteboard that laid out how organized religion has done the same, uh, often using many of the principles that Chomsky talked about. We have an enlarged copy of this that we're going to show you next week, and we're going to work through this for the rest of the year. We're going to take that chart, and we're going to work through it uh, to help support the things that I'm saying. We called the programs when we examined Chomsky, No More Hacking at the Branches, part one, part two, part three, all the way to part 12, I think. Now that we have those principles underfoot and we're getting to the truth of it, We're finally getting to the truth of it. We're calling these segments Striking at the Roots. And that comes from, I think it was maybe Nietzsche. So many hack at the branches of a problem, few strike true to the root. So we're going to begin between now and December talking about the root and hacking at it. So hopefully we can do some good. I suppose it's time for me to explain a few things that I believe which will expose me in some ways probably to some scrutiny by the Calvinists and people out there. And, uh, but I think it's important to say them because we want to be transparent and open with who we are. Let me say this, but back in the early 19th century, perhaps before, a man came forth and he believed there was a call on his life to restore the Christian faith back to its New Testament roots that had been lost. Alexander Campbell is his name, and he was born in 1788, and he was the founder of what's called the Restorationist Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement. He had a follower for a while by the name of Sidney Rigdon, and Sidney Rigdon ultimately came to a disagreement with Alexander Campbell, and they had a parting of the ways and he went, Sydney, and he joined forces with another visionary by the name of Joseph Smith. Uh, the interesting thing is Sidney Rigdon went on and joined th- three, four, seven, I don't remember, other movements after Joseph Smith's time with Joseph Smith. So uh, he was a, a seeker of some sort, and he and Joseph Smith were together for a while, and they would produce their own system of beliefs, which I believe were relative to Alexander Campbell's founding thoughts of needing to restore the uh, biblical truth back to the earth. 
many religious reformers and uh, restorers in that day could see there's something wrong with Protestantism, okay, especially Calvinism. There's something wrong with that movement that started in 1530. Uh, there's something certainly wrong with Roman Catholicism. I mean, what the heck is that all about, they said to themselves. And, and or Greece or Ruth, Rush, Ruthen, Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, so many of them stepped forward and said, we're going to start something that's going to restore true biblical Christianity back to the earth. Alexander Campbell was 18 when Joseph Smith was born, so he had that many years of a jump on, on Smith before Joseph Smith came around to many of the ideas he established. It's my belief that Campbell's, follow, uh, Campbell's follower, Sidney Rigdon, was a major player in the early development of Mormonism, in, in, quite possibly in the development of the Book of Mormon itself, because the Book of Mormon contains most of the Alexander Campbell's complaints of what has been lost in true Christianity. So whether or not my suspicions are correct and Rigdon played such a role, one thing is for sure. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and Alexander Campbell and Ellen G. White and Mary a a a Baker Eddy and Russell Tra Taz, uh, Charles Taz Russell and all of these people, uh, even the Shakers, they were personally possessed the tools to the talents and the charm and the ability and the intellect and the imagination to take these seeds and develop entire belief systems. But here's the thing. Most of them did it uh, out of their own imagination. Most of them did not try to prove everything from a sound hermeneutic of Scripture. They said, we think that we came from a life before. We think that baptism should be this way. We think, and they didn't try to stick to a sound examination of the content of the Bible, especially Joseph Smith. The older he got and the further away he got from the nascent church, the more outlandish his ideas. He incorporated biblical concepts, but he would say this is revelation and and his revelations trumped what the Bible had to say. So from Smith to Brigham Young, Brigham Young built upon that foundation and using his skills of organization and implementation, the, the rest is history. So move out with me from Brigham Young to 1972. In 1972, when I was a wee 10 year old LDS boy yearning for the ironic priesthood, actually probably staring at pictures in National Geographic that I shouldn't have been. But nevertheless, uh, here I am 10 years old and Marky Peterson, apostle of the LDS Church. Smith has done his planning. Brigham Young's done his organizing. Marky Peterson gets up and he says this. We Latter-day Saints announce that new light has come. That God has given a new revelation of himself in modern times, and we are the custodians of that revelation. He has raised up new apostles and prophets to labor among the nations, as did Peter and Paul. We are those apostles and prophets. 
we are divinely called representatives for today. The word we that he uses so emphatically in that speech, reworded to me, says the few, the few. And he's speaking to a growing audience of Mormon people who are the many. We have this. We have the new light. He's called new apostles and prophets. We have the authority. You listen. The few managing the many. So from Alexander Campbell to Smith to Young to Marky e. Peterson to present day, Mormonism embodies not, not, not a restoration of Jesus' true church. But neither did Alexander Campbell and his Church of Christ, neither than John Calvin, uh, nor Erasmus, nor the denominations that sprouted up out of Protestantism, nor the Catholics 1,200 years be, uh, before, because every single one of them, every single one of them tried to formalize a faith, whether planted in 1830 or yesterday or in 385, they all tried to formalize a faith on a faulty foundation, okay? And this is where it gets a little weird. For some, most, maybe all of you, God has allowed me, better yet, he's created me to be one of many, along with many of you, many in this room even, to see this, to see from the Bible that they have created a faulty system to begin with. Not from my own abilities or imaginations or strength, but he has allowed me to see this and to prove it through the Bible. That's what we do. That's our uh, bailiwick, is that we can take the Bible, we go through it, we examine it, we change our minds. We, I am proven wrong. That, so don't think I, I'm saying you know, I am infallible or anything. I boast only in Christ, where he is completely holy and good. I am completely rotten and bad, without equivocation. But from a very young age, he has molded in me a person that always has sought to deconstruct, not reform, not reconstruct, not restore, but deconstruct centuries of unbiblical doctrines and practices and to assist in the liberation of people from religious bondage and the grip of religious controls where the few continue to try to puppeteer the many. It's been in my nature since I was a kid to represent the common man and to be against the authority who sit there and try to manipulate the masses so that they can benefit. The rhetoric may bother some of you, I realize this, and it actually goes deeper than I'm letting on, but please understand, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, I'm not a religious leader, someone to follow, someone to pay money to. None of those things. My life and my mind has been prepared in some very specific ways, though, to call BS. Call BS on what is there. And so the reason for my specific mission, like it, believe it, receive it or not, is to help seekers of truth become emancipated from religious bondage. If you ever see or hear me promote things that will create bondage in your life, run like hell. I've lost it. I've lost it. 
So remember that because that's what happens to most of us. You have an idea, you start to do something, but you lose it along the way. And we're all human and that, that occurs. But we will fight against groupthink and we will fight against what they have put upon us, but we're going to use the Bible to do it. So that chart that I drew a few weeks back and put on the board, there are a list of 12 things that I maintain that we can prove through the Bible supports. And these are things institutional religions will deny. So I'm going to go to the board and I'm going to write those 12 things and we'll talk and and after we introduce that if there's no calls we'll wrap it up for tonight. Uh, all right. The first thing that we're going to spend a couple weeks on starting next week unless we have a, a visiting speaker is going to be the gospel. We are going to uh, go through and explain how it is free. It is universal. It doesn't require any kind of institution or any kind of organization to share it. What it is. How it works. We will show how after we talk about what the gospel really is, how it is to everybody and it comes without price and it's open, and it doesn't require institutional governance to get it out there, we will show how the religions today will go out and they'll say, we possess the good news, and there's more to it that you need to consider. It's more than what Jesus' gospel is. It's always that way. I don't care who they are. They always add something to the good news. So the first thing that we are going to prove through Scripture is the gospel does not need man-made interference. It doesn't need government. It doesn't need uh, tracts to be paid for. The gospel is shared by word of mouth. And when one person has it, if there's one person on the earth today who has the gospel... They could ignite the world after a couple hundred years if everybody who heard it by the Spirit and converted uh, shared it with their mouth. That's it. And their lives. The second one we're going to prove through Scripture is that the gospel creates unburdening of all things. Everything. It's good news. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest. We will see that the religions will come along and say, we need to give you some assignments. We need your participation. We're having an event. We really hope you all come out and support. Why? Because it feeds the institution. So unburdening is part and, part and parcel of the good news. It is part of this wonderful gift that has been given. And once the wonderful gift has been received by the Spirit, 
There is no follow-up where the unburdening becomes a burden. There is no need for that. There never has been a need for that. Someone receives it on the road to Emmaus. They go off and they live their life and they enjoy their occupation and they have freedom in Christ and there's no burdening. But the religions come in, the few manipulating the many, and they introduce uh, burdening, the opposite. You'll see that everything has its uh, addition. It's in the other things we'll introduce as we go along. Third one. True humility. Not feigned humility, like Golda Meir, the prime minister of... of, uh, of uh, Israel once said, stop being so humble, you're not that great. We're not talking about feigned humility. We're not talking about wincing into bright lights so that we look like we're sincere. We are talking about brokenness that comes because you realize what this is and what a gift it is and how it's come to us. And so we have a true humility. We are the weak things of the world. And the gospel is always embraced by the weak. It's embraced by the people who struggle in this life with their flesh, their sin, their, but they have hearts, their money, their uh, status, their physical health. I mean, look who Jesus really reached to when he walked around. It was the masses of people who were suffering. That does not change suddenly because we're in the 21st century. Or what century are we in? <laughs> so it's a true humility. The religions come along and say, we need to be intellectual about this. We need to get degrees in order to really be able to teach what the good news is all about. And therefore, we need to have some power plays. And we need to get involved in politics so we can reform the world. And true humility is lost. It's lost when the men get involved. You see, so we're going to prove through the Bible and through what it has to say that true humility is not what you see thriving and abiding in religions today. Okay, I don't care what form it rears its ugly head as being proud. If it is, if it consists of things that are opposite this stuff, it is not humble. We'll talk about that. Then we will show that Jesus has all authority. Jesus. I had somebody tell me, they said, who do you, who are you, uh, are you accountable to? I said, Jesus. And they said, that's a cop out. <laughs> what do they want? <laughs> they wanted me to be accountable to them. See, and, and, but he has all authorities given to him. We're supposed to have a relationship. We read that on, on uh, billboards. It's, it's relationship, not religion. But go to that church and you'll find out it's religion. And they have authority and they expect you to respect their authority. The problem is he is the one by the spirit and the spirit is his spirit that we relate to. True Christians have a relationship with him. Therefore, no man or woman can insert themselves in between that in any way, shape, or fashion. And we're going to prove through the Bible all the ways the churches say we have the authority is BS, complete BS. That's, part of the, that's one of the reasons the Catholics and the Mormons, they at least have some 
argument to go by that they have the authority. The Protestants don't have a leg to stand on with authority. I mean, you talk to a Protestant, uh, uh, someone who preaches that they have authority, just go down the line. Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Where'd you get it? Ultimately, they got it from some guy who says, I have the authority. None of them have it. Only Jesus has it. And we'll show through the Bible that this is the case. The next one is we live by the Spirit. Now, this one terrifies people. Well, we live by the Spirit, but, you know, there's other things we have to do. There's other ways we have to, you know, live your life, not just by the Spirit. You know, it's important that iron sharpens iron and you get with a quorum of brethren and sit about and listen to what they have to say, you know, because they're part of the Spirit. You know, there's fellowship. Ball! You live by the Spirit! This is part of the beauty of the gospel is that the spirit in believers moves you where it wants. And therefore, you don't have to belong to a church. You don't have to come every week. You don't have to come every year. You don't ever have to go again. You never have to go. The churches will say, no, 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 no. That's not the spirit talking to you. Maybe it is. Or maybe the spirit says go to church every week at the same place. We don't know, but every individual has that right. But you see, they can't stand that one, man, because the laws are written on our hearts. And when the law is written on your heart, that means you're free to live your life as you want. If the law says I'm eating cheeseburgers three times a day, that's written on my heart. My heart fails after five years, fine. But if that's what I'm going to do, I am free to do it. There's no finger pointing. We live by the Spirit, not by misappropriating Bible content to make up different rules. See, because if you don't do this, there's a word that the religions will include, or they might not include, but will embrace. Conformity. It's conformity. And where you are free to live by the Spirit, the religions say, we need to have some... Boundaries. We need to have some rules. We need to have some things set in place so that we don't have people doing this and people doing that, and you know, dogs and cats living together and all these horrible things. We need boundaries. We don't, we cannot let the people, for God's sake, live by the Spirit. They will just do what they want. But aren't they responsible before God in their faith? They are. So, we live by the Spirit, we'll prove that. And then following that, look at this one's terrifying. All things are then lawful. All things are not awful. All things are lawful. And that means when you're living by the Spirit, you are responsible to Jesus, your authority, to live your life as you want, and someone else can do the same. Well, they're living with their boyfriend, and they claim to be a Christian. They, do, they claim to be a Christian? Yes, they do. They claim to love Jesus? Yes, they, they believe in his shed blood? Yes, they do. Well, it seems to me that they believe they're living by the Spirit. If they think they're living in sin, they are. If they think they're not, they're not. And we leave that up to them and God. All things are lawful. Not all things are expedient. But all things are lawful, and we'll show that in this day and age, everything is by the Spirit, everything is written on the human heart, and all things are lawful. 
That's why we don't get up in arms over certain sin groups when we're sharing the good news to the world. There's no sin groups we worry about. Why? Because he took care of sin. It's gone. So there's no need to worry about that. We have the Spirit, and we let God work through people who have a problem with sin in their life. Ah, another big one. We are open and free financially. That means God tells us how to use our money and we're free to use it that way or free to use it a different way. He is the one who leads us and guides us. We are in all in different positions. Some of us can't afford to pay our bills. Some of us can pay our bills in abundance. It doesn't matter. God is not a respecter of persons. Financially, every single person is autonomous when it comes to their walk in the gospel. We don't want burdens. Of course, we know what the churches say. They say tithe. They almost all, almost all of them say it. And that in and of itself changes the dynamic of everything we've talked about. And it's one we harp on simply because it's not biblical in the New Testament sense. In fact, the New Testament speaks in a different way about your financial uh, uh, place before God. So after that, we come to one that is a, I'm going to call it a better eschatology. And when I say a better eschatology, I, I, I say it's better because if we take all four of the main eschatological views, the futurist view, the historist view, the preterist view, or the idealist view, and we say this is what Scripture says when it comes to the future, the second coming, the end of the world, the end of the age, there's a better eschatology out there by the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about how men will then interpret the Bible. I'm talking about what the Bible actually says. This is a big one. Because if you get this down, it changes the rules of religion all over the place. We're going to talk spend a few weeks on that eschatology. Our guest last week talked to us about eschatology. But there are questions in the New Testament that cannot be answered sufficiently. Cannot be answered sufficiently by any of the views except for the, uh, the better one. And we'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the end of, and this, I wrote the book on that, this material religion, which is what all this is leading up to. And how the Bible supports this. It's not just an idea that if, the, if religion is still material, then there is a need to, to, to not be free financially. And, and, not, and things, all things are not lawful if we're still in a material religious age. And we don't live by the Spirit. We do live by laws and boundaries. And, and Jesus doesn't have all authority. If we're still in a material religion world, then there has to be authority over those material things. And so it all plays into each other if we're trying to look at a way to, to see the faith now. So that's the end of material religion. Of course, the, the churches say, well, you know, 
we don't believe that's so, and so we're going to have strategies and work on market share, and we're going to create brick-and-mortar institutions, and of course, ties are necessary, and we're going to have worship concerts, and, and, uh, and all the things that come along with material religion. But the Bible is clear about what the faith becomes. Unshakable is the word it uses. Unshakable. Because God has shaken everything that can be shakable. All right, this is going to be a big one, but we're going to go after the use of hell, Satan, and afterlife punishment. For some reason, people really want these things to exist uh, mightily. They want (laughs) Satan to be identified here, They want people to be warned of hell constantly, and they want everyone to be threatened with afterlife punishment. And we are going to show through the Bible again, contextually, that these things are done. They are over. And uh, if we can do that, then we are going to help break down some of the things that keep the few in charge of the many. And then we're going to show how we do not worship We worship Jesus, we worship God, we do not worship the Bible. And we're going to show, and we've done this before, how the Bible was not even around and available to most early Christians, and not even early, for the first 280 years they didn't even have anything resembling the New Testament. They had the old, but not the new, and on and on and on and on. Today, we use that thing in our churches as a manual and a manual none of us can agree on, as a manual of musts and laws and rules, when in reality it has never played that role for the first 1,580 years of the Christian church. It just started to play the role once the Protestant Reformation came around and we agreed upon the books and the printing press came about, etc. And once we do that, then I'm going to make the suggestion, uh, having taken all of this, that the faith, the good news faith, is entirely subjective. And this is really a reiteration of all of these points. That it's up to you on how you're going to pursue God. It's up to you how you're going to believe. It's up to you how you're going to live your life. It's up to you how you're going to love. And it's not up to any brick and mortar or any feigned authority or any pseudo this or pseudo that. It's really up to you. And if, if we can put that power into people's hands and in their minds as they pursue Christ freely, we teach the word. It's not getting rid of that. We can teach the word in an open place and let people decide what they want to believe. But if we can get to this point, we will overcome the opposite of this, and that is that the faith is objective. Because while the claim is the faith is objective, and it's claimed by 32,000 denominations around the world. It's claimed by the Mormons. It's claimed by the Catholics. While it's claimed, none of them can produce something that's agreed upon by the other. But when you have the spirit in your heart and the faith is subjective, then it is an objective faith to you by the spirit. It's objectively applied to you by God, the one you are accountable to. 
If we can get through and work through these in a systematic way, kind of, not systematic theology, but in a systematic way, giving each one a couple weeks, we'll wrap the year up having presented, using the Bible, the best way to approach this beautiful faith that was given to us freely by Christ Jesus so many thousands of years ago. So, uh, do we have any calls? We do. Do we have a spot? Show the spot, and we'll come back to the call. I focus on the LDS Church because I was LDS for 40 years. I understand it well from first-hand experience and uh, that's kind of where God has put me to talk about Mormonism. Part of that discussion includes talking about Christianity. We've discovered that you don't just have a discussion about Mormonism because what happens is you bring people out of the Mormon church and then they're left with uh, quite a mess in the Christian church. So I talk about both. I was LDS for 40 years. I've now been a Christian for nearly 20, and I understand both sides, and that's where my heart is, that's where God has put us, so that's what I did. We're going to Ryan. Ryan on line one. You're on the air, brother. Hey, Sean, how are you? I have just only one question. Yes. Uh, what is the difference between Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit? Is it the same thing, or... Is there any difference? The only difference is uh, the King James writers wrote ghost, but every okay. time every time it's used, it's always pneuma in the Greek and it's spirit. One in the same. Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, uh, one in the same, my friend. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right, just this question. That's it. Okay. Thanks, brother. Bye. Bye, bye. Okay, bye. Let's go to Charlie on line two. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. <laughs> Sean. What up? Every time I think you run out of something to say, you pull something like this off. I am amazed. Praise <laughs> you God. Know, you're you're going to get a lot of God-fearing Christians kicked out of their Bible studies. Oh, good. <laughs> the excommunications are going to go wild. <laughs> I say, because I seem uh, to uh, lose my spot in a lot of them. Uh, because of my theology and just understanding that maybe through all this you will get people to realize that the Bible was not written to us, maybe yeah. for us, but not to us. Yeah. And they can come to understand that we're 21st century Christians, and if the churches are going to pick up, because the kids are getting a lot smarter these days than they used to, and we can go to the original Greek and everything right at our uh, fingertips, they're not yeah. believing half of it anymore, but it seems like the, the, they want to just stay in the norm, and no matter what you do, they don't want to listen to the truth. No. Um, you know what, Charlie, you made me think, I think it would be a great experience for every truth seeker to be excommunicated from the church. I mean, it just opens <laughs> it. <laughs> yes, it absolutely would. I mean, if you look at the prodigal son, I, I, re, I, I refer to that a lot because the prodigal son just simply came to himself and realized that he needed God in his life. And when yeah. he was the father of God, and it's a perfect example. 
and there was nobody there saying that you have to follow the rules and you have to give a tithe and you have to do this, was right. simply received him with open arms. Isn't that wonderful? It is. Praise it God, is. Charlie. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you go, Sean. Thanks uh, so really much, appreciate my brother. you. Love you, brother. And have a safe trip home tonight. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for showing up here in the church studio. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till 